Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written three dozen cookbooks, including the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook. You should check that out. Every single recipe sized for every size of air fryer, and the upcoming Instant Air Fryer Bible, an instant air fryer book specifically written for the air fryers made by the people who make the Instant Pot, like the Omni and the Vortex. Although if you have any air fryer, you can use it. It's a beautifully photographed, and some of the recipes are even step-by-step photographed book Mm. about how to use an air fryer. But nothing in this show is about air fryers. In fact, our first segment is about something that's the opposite (laughs) of air fryers. Then we've got a one-minute cooking tip, an interview with Emmanuel LaRoche, and finally, what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. Segment one, we're talking about ice. Ice? Well, actually, what I want to call this is, you're putting ice in that? Ice? It's a big subject. Who didn't know how to make ice? Well, I think... Who makes ice? <laughs> do, do people still make ice? I mean, I, favorite... I'm so old that I remember making ice, but uh, do people make ice? That was my favorite uh, episode about Mad About You, the Thanksgiving episode with the mothers-in-law come in and the <laughs> Jamie and what's his name? Are, Paul. And Paul are buying ice and the parents are all like, they buy ice. Yeah, it's they're like... so wasteful. They <laughs> buy ice. But when we lived in New York City years ago, we bought ice. And part of that is because we had one... One small freezer in a smallish refrigerator in a Manhattan apartment, and we could not keep ice and didn't have an ice maker, so I guess we had to make ice, but we couldn't keep a lot of ice. And so before any parties, even dinner parties, we would go down to the corner supermarket and buy a bag of ice. Just keep it in the sink, and there's the ice. There's all the ice we need for the day. So, So the first thing about ice is, do you make it? Or do you buy it? And we cast mm. no judgment mm. on anyone mm. who buys mm. ice. I'm good with buying ice. Mm. And the nice thing about buying ice, usually when you buy ice, it comes in lovely little cubes as opposed to those, those well, semi-circular things. You know when someone has an automatic ice maker that's not high enough. Unless, you know, the ice has been sitting in the ice uh, freezer at a supermarket or a 7-Eleven or wherever it is for a very long time. <laughs> and, and then what happens? It's one giant hunk of ice. I can remember time and again in New York City when I would come home with a bag of ice for a dinner party and Bruce would pick it up and throw it, <laughs> well, drop it, drop it against the floor to shatter it into ice cubes again because it would be just one big lump. Yeah, but I'd go out in the stairway and do it because those were good, hard steel and cement <laughs> stairways and I didn't want to ruin the linoleum. Yeah. That gorgeous that rental gorgeous, gorgeous linoleum. Rental linoleum oh my God. Well, a lot of people, anyway, I think a lot of people don't make ice anymore. I don't think there are many ice cube days, but I'm going to tell you that Bruce and I still make ice and we have an ice maker in our fridge and the reason we make ice is because I like giant mm cubes in my drink. So if I'm going to put ice in bourbon, don't shoot me, but yes, occasionally I do. Or if I'm going to put ice in gin, I want a giant cube. So we have several, I don't know what, three or four trays that make big square cubes. And then we have two things that each make a big round ball of ice. And those big round balls just fit in our double old fashioned glasses. So there's a huge variety of size and shape of ice. As Mark just mentioned, we like the giant cubes, we like the spheres, but even our 
automatic ice maker in our refrigerator, freezer, makes crushed ice or it makes cube, but it doesn't really make cubes. It makes those semi-circular yeah, things that, moons. and I don't like that. And if you get a new freezer with an ice maker, look for a slightly higher end one because they make really nice little cubes instead of those semi-circular iconic really? things so there, really there are like. refrigerators and now, now i'm going to show my ignorance there are refrigerators on the market that make different sizes and shapes of cubes of ice seriously well, you weren't paying attention mark and i were recently looking at new refrigerators no, I we, wasn't we, paying attention. we went to the appliance store to buy no, a new dishwasher I, I, I honestly don't care <laughs> but now you're interested well See? you yeah, should have cared in the I, store I, i'm i'm a bit interested because we're doing a podcast but in the store <laughs> i just wanted to go home so this is the ongoing joke of Bruce and Mark is that Bruce likes to go to stores. And when Mark gets inside a store, the only thing Mark wants to do is go home. So <laughs> so now standalone ice makers. I'm going to be a really great old person. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to leave my house. Oh, I'm excellent. never going to bathe. I guess I'm going out a lot mm. and going out alone. Mm. I'm going to look like Howard Hughes. If you know who that Tissue is. boxes on your feet. If you know yes. who that is, you are as old as I am. Okay. Anyway, please go on. So... A standalone ice makers like they have in bars, those usually come with cubes, but they're one size. They're pretty small. Um, and there's a reason why sometimes you would have crushed ice and sometimes you would have cubed ice. And in bars and oh, restaurants, God. they often have very small cubes. And what that allows is for quick ice melt so mm-hmm. that when they're shaking mm-hmm. a drink, mm-hmm. you get a lot of ice melt right away. Mm-hmm. And also, to be honest, I think they do that so that like if you order a vodka on the rocks, the the water the ice melts so much faster it waters mm, down that vodka mm, you could drink it mm, faster when mm. you order another one especially if you're at not necessarily a super high end place but they're serving well vodka and well bourbon that um, <clears throat> shall we say has plenty of the burn in it uh, you want that stuff to, to to ice down pretty fast you know I, I can I tell my story about insulting our friends once about ice sure so we went to these people's house and they're very fancy people I don't I just, think they listen to this anyway. I, I don't know but they're very fancy people and and they had their, uh, their acquaintances more than friends. And they had this very fancy bar, and it had all of the liquor in um, decanters, right? And right so, out of the 50s with I the mean, little silver plaques on the front yeah, that said I know, what it was. Yeah, I know. It was so fancy, and it was so up from <laughs> Bruce and I who just pour straight out of the bottle into a glass. So it was so up. So I didn't quite know what to do because I wanted a bourbon. But, you know, I didn't want to insult this guy because the, here's this bourbon in this fine crystal decanter thing. And I, I didn't want to insult him by asking for ice in bourbon if it's really fine bourbon, right? If it's really fine bourbon, then I would just want a splash of water. But who knows? Because he poured it into a right. decanter. So I don't know what it is. So I actually said to him, he said, do you want ice in your bourbon? And I said, well, it depends on what bourbon that is. What is that bourbon? And then he had to fess up that it was the most rot, got, <laughs> low, end, hideous bourbon Ever and I and I said, oh yeah, and he got insulted, and I was so embarrassed because I I was trying actually not to insult him, and I ended up insulting him. And the thing is, these are really Tony people. Oh my gosh, these are these are the fancy of the fancy they people. Are fancy, and to I expected he was going to have better than Rotgut, but okay, so yeah. he had Rotgut. I mean, and that's the way rot-gut. it goes. How do you, as my father would say, how do you think he got all his money? <laughs> By buying rot gut bourbon. But pay attention next time you go out to restaurants. You'll notice that the higher end you go, the bigger the ice cubes are. And when you end up at Chili's, it's 
crushed ice. Mm-hmm. And when you end up at fancy mm-hmm. bars, it's giant ice cubes. And that a lot of that has to do with how quickly the ice is going to melt the booze so you drink it faster. It makes it taste better because you get rid of the burn and mm-hmm. you'll order more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all mm-hmm. about that cheaper it, places do crushed it ice. It waters down the impurities and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot. of course, we all know that some things don't have ice and some things do. We don't agree on this, though. No, we don't agree at all. I, I have a thing that I like. Listen, I am from the South. And so I like and <clears throat> allow me to have it, Coke. It's called Coke. Whether it's a Dr. Pepper or a Sprite <laughs> or an Orange Crush, it's a Coke. So I like Cokes, as we said when I was a kid. So his version of Coke usually is a diet root beer, I think. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever kind of Coke you like. So uh, what kind of Coke do you want? So that's what we said growing up. What kind of Coke do you want? So anyway, whatever Coke I'm drinking, of all the Cokes there are in the world, or iced tea, I fill the glass to the rim with ice and then pour in the liquid. I like things with tons of ice, which means I am a miserable human in Paris and Rome and Milan where you get a chip of ice in a glass. Now, I also love ice, but I put ice in everything. First of all, I drink iced coffee a lot, which means that milk gets poured on ice because there's espresso in the ice. I will never drink iced coffee because the thought of milk in ice just makes me want to Ralph. I I can't even imagine it. Okay, go on. I also, and I don't care who I insult with this, I like an ice cube in my white wine. Oh, If it's not cold enough, I draw the line. I don't put it in champagne. No, and I'll tell you what you don't do, and you know it's wrong because you don't do it in restaurants. So you know it's wrong. (laughs) But in restaurants, the white wine is properly chilled. (sighs) And sometimes at home, it's it's properly chilled at my house. Not always. No. If, oh, if it comes right dude. out of the wine cellar, it's not chilled enough. Dude. And if it hasn't been in the refrigerator yet, I'm going to put an ice cube in it. It's so embarrassing. But I also like spritzers, and you don't. So. No, I like Aperol spritz. No, I like white wine spritzers. Oh, no, no. Pour gross. white wine over gross. ice and top it with seltzer. Gross. Just gross. <laughs> I, I, uh, ugh. Uh, so, no. And I'm not going to drink iced coffee because of that milk problem. I, I see these people coming out of Starbucks with this alleged coffee thing that has like one shot of espresso and 10 tons of whipped cream. And oh, and 80 pumps. Of sugar syrup <laughs> and all, that stuff. and there's no coffee. And I always think to myself, "Ooh, all that creamy ice garbage in there—that is so gross." Now, I will say something that I do that Bruce doesn't agree with. Well, it's not that I don't agree with; it drives me crazy. Okay, the reason that I fill that glass full of ice to the top and then pour in the iced—and notice I said it properly—iced. <laughs> Tea. What has happened to the tea? It has been iced. The reason I do it is so I can eat the ice. That's why yeah, I do it. it I love. Teeth. I sit at my desk all day writing, especially when we're writing cookbooks in the summer. I sit at my desk all day chewing ice. It's just what I do. The sound of that crushing ice drives <laughs> me crazy. I know it drives a lot of people crazy, like fingernails <laughs> on styrofoam. But mostly for me. I can't do it. My teeth are too sensitive, and oh, if I try a fair flower. Oh, God, cold ice, it just shoots down the nerves of and, my teeth. I uh, can't do it. Let me say these are 60-year-old teeth I got here, so I'm still chomping on ice. I have always chomped mm. on ice. The bet When I was a kid, a uh, kid, when I was in college, and I'd be driving back and forth from college to home, I would stop by, a, now let me say it in the proper Texas dialect, a 7-11 <laughs> I would stop by a 7-Eleven 
<laughs> and I would get a big cup of ice, and I would chew ice. Would they in the charge car. you for the ice? No, back then they didn't charge for the ice, and I would chew ice all the way back home to Dallas. It was just a thing. I can't help it. So you know, we should talk for just a minute about making ice out of things uh, besides water, right? You well, you could pour left. Uh, you could pour leftover coffee in your in your ice cube tray so that you don't water down your iced coffee. Ugh. You could pour white wine in those ice cube oh, trays so you don't water down that white wine. You like iced? I <laughs> uh, now listen. I you wanna... could put milk in those ice cube trays. Oh, so you God! So the, you oh my drop that God! That's disgusting. Pour your espresso oh, over milk ice cubes. Oh. <laughs> Gross. Besides, grown men should not drink milk. It's a whole thing. So anyway, um, <laughs> what did you have for breakfast this morning? I, yeah, well, that's steamed milk. That's different. That's a completely different item. That steamed milk and espresso. So anyway, um, let me just say that you can. And in, back in the day when I used to make broth before I ran a Dante podcast and before I started teaching as much as I do and as many cookbooks as we write, I didn't even actually have time to make homemade broth. Of course, I would freeze it in ice cube trays because just even two ice cubes of homemade broth with canned broth made all the difference in the world in a braise. So that's another thing that you can put in those trays. And of course, fruit juices you can put in ice cube trays in order to make uh, summery drinks. It's always nice to put some kind of fruit juice ice cubes into really refreshing summery drinks. I'm sure Bruce would want to put grape juice in white wine. I'm mm. sure that's just what he's going well, to do. Well, here's a tip for the summer. Freeze a margarita mix, bottled margarita mix in ice cube trays, and then throw that into your blender with the oh, tequila. that's an idea then, right? Yeah, so but slushy you... tequila without having to add more ice. Well, there is. Now, will that crap freeze? Oh, wait, I've discovered closed my opinion of mixed <laughs> drinks. Will that margarita mix? Well, it's only sugar. It's on corn syrup. So if your freezer freeze. if your freezer's low enough. I mean it's a lower freezing point than 32, but it'll freeze. Okay. Well, that's great. Before we get on to our one minute cooking tip, let me remind you that it would be great if you would subscribe to this podcast and even greater if you would rate or podcast on even greatest if you would give this podcast a comment. Just great podcast or great fun or, you know, of course, love you guys. Well, that's what I want to hear. Love you guys. That would be the best thing that you could do to help us keep the podcast going. Of course, this is an unsponsored podcast. We're doing this just for the sheer joy of doing it. And we would love to hear a little back from you or go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. There we post the latest episodes. And occasionally, lately we've been rather busy, occasionally questions about food and cooking, and you can get involved in the conversation there. Okay, on to segment two. Our one-minute cooking tip. So this is all about how to make clear ice cubes. One, start with distilled water because the impurities in tap water can cause clouds. Distilled yep. water. And where, what, to what chemical lab does one drive to That's find said distilled? That's called Stop and Shop or whatever your local supermarket so, is, Tom Thumb, Safeway. You so buy a bottle of distilled water. I am the writer of the cookbooks and Bruce is the chef of the cookbooks. Which means and Mark doesn't go to the supermarket. I don't know what's in supermarkets, so I have no clue. <laughs> so they still distilled water. Okay. One does not have to drive to the Dow chemical no. lab to pick up the distilled but water. Even 
even more important is the ice must freeze slowly, which yeah, gives the yeah. whatever air is in it a chance to get out as it's freezing rather than being trapped in it. Yeah. So there are a number of ways to make your ice freeze slowly because quick freezing causes those bubbles. One, you could heat the water before you uh, freeze it, which is, which what is marked with hot water. Hot water will freeze slowly, um, causing a little less cloudiness, or raise the temperature of your freezer e. I know, to 31, which is just below freezing. This may not be great for long-term storage of your food, but it'll make your ice clearer or buy ice. Yeah, I let me just say, and I'm pushing this thing beyond one minute. Let me just say that I don't put super hot water in the tubes, in the cube trays for the big, giant, round and square ice cubes. I put warm water in there. And two, they have a dedicated shelf in our freezer because, of course, if you put a hot uh, cube tray full of water next to something else in the freezer, it will defrost it nice. before it freezes. So be very careful about that. But warm water will make clearer cubes. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with Emmanuel Roche, author of the upcoming book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. I'm very excited today to be speaking with Emmanuel Roche. He is the host of the very fabulous podcast, Flavors Unknown, and he is the author of a new book coming out this fall, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, 50 American Chefs Chart Today's Food Culture. Welcome, Emmanuel. Thank you very much, Bruce. I'm really excited to be um, you know, on your podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. So you have built a career interviewing chefs and other culinary leaders to learn where inspiration comes from and to share this with foodies around the world. So I'm going to start with a really broad question. How is today's food culture defined in the U.S.? Yeah, so uh, this is a very good question, Bruce, and, um, you know, and, and a complicated one as well. And and um, maybe I have a specific uh, viewpoint, you know, on it. Obviously, you can tell from my accent and my name that I'm not from New Jersey. So I have... Uh, I was born in France and grew up in France and moved to the U.S. 20 years ago. So obviously, I have this uh, probably filter as well when I'm looking at food compared to maybe other people, um, you know, here in the U.S. But um, I have learned um, throughout those 20 years that I've been here to um, really dig into the regional aspect of what um, America can bring. Um, I always have in mind, you know, my family from France uh, telling me, oh, you know, there's no culture of food, you know, in the US, it's all about hot dogs and pizza and burgers. And uh, I think I made a mission, you know, to, to really uh, explore since, uh, you know, I arrived. And uh, in fact, when you look at the culture of the food in the US today, it's very rich. There's a lot of things. There's obviously traditional, you know, food dishes that I learned to appreciate, uh, like, you know, for instance, clam chowder, different specialties in terms of barbecue, you know, from the South. Uh, um, I love passionately like the Southern pies, you know, when every time I go to the South, I I, I love to taste those and, and so on. So there's these traditional food dishes that um, really create this um, culture here in the U.S. But I have to say that throughout all my um, trips and travels, I, I really discovered like the, you know, the richness of uh, the food in the Appalachia, in the Gulf Coast, in, uh, you know, the low country and uh, the hot chiles in, uh, in New Mexico and, and so on. So 
I, I really wanted to have all of this in my podcast with specific, um, you know, specific guests um, and chefs uh, that really celebrate like the the diversity of um, of the originality of the U.S. And obviously, um, there's a lot of uh, things that are in food connected with. Uh, the history of uh, immigration, you know, in the US. And I, I talk about this in, in the book. I have a whole chapter, you know, around this, you know, this mosaic of culture, how as I call it. Um, and I spent time researching um, in the New York Public Library um, and looking about what happened since like the 1965 uh, Immigration Act, where a lot of other like country beside, I would say, Western Europe and, and China, you know, suddenly there was like an open door for a lot of uh, other countries to come in. So now we see a lot of like second generation, third generation of, of immigrant uh, with daughters and sons of uh, those immigrants uh, that are becoming chef. And uh, so they are influencing the way how we eat. You know, there's a lot of things around like regional Mexican cuisine in the US. Uh, there's um, today like the influence of uh, Peruvian food, uh, you know, that you can uh, discover Korean influence, Filipino influence. So um, this is what um, I would say, this is like the, the culture, you know, of the food, um, you know, in, in the US uh, today. So people are uh, expressing their identity and um, connecting to their roots from their families, where they are coming from and celebrating this, you know, through food. So what I'm hearing is that U.S. food culture is really about diversity, that more so than almost any other country on earth, the diversity is what defines the food culture here. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And this is something, you know, that I, um, I mentioned in the book, um, this is something that uh, almost now I know how to answer my my family because uh, when I arrived in two thousand two, uh, yes, of course I, I knew you know some specifics about the food in the U.S. But they were always asking me so, but what what is this, the the food here in in, in the U.S. And I was telling them about you know some like Chinese restaurants and then Japanese influences and some dishes you know that had. Uh, some roots maybe coming from other countries and they were like yeah but that, that's not american food this is you know food coming from elsewhere and uh you know i think i can tell them now that uh yes like this is the the history of uh, the food in america is linked to uh, the the history of uh, immigration and that's what makes the the richness of what this uh, country is about in your ongoing conversations emmanuel with chefs did you uncover anything unexpected about where or how these professionals get their inspiration? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stories in in the book, you know, based on uh, the different episodes that I had on uh, on the podcast Flavors Unknown. Uh, obviously, we talked about uh, the source of inspiration that you we we all think about, or the chef sharing, you know, about like celebrating the produce, for instance, or looking back at their childhood memories, or uh, maybe um, inspiration from nature you know, colors in, in nature or or even in paintings, for instance, or their travel, obviously. Um, there was one story that I, I talk about in, in the book, and this is um, something that was really interesting. Um, I have a good friend. Um, his name is Chef Fiori Tedesco in, in Austin. His restaurant is called Locadoro in, in Austin. He mentioned a story of being inspired uh, with... Um, like uh, songs, uh, I think he's, he was taking a shower and then he was singing and there's a song from Neil Young uh, called On the Beach. And um, 
he was, you know, singing the song. And then suddenly there's like pictures and visuals that came in uh, in his brain about, uh, um, you know, like different stones. And he remind me of certain, um, you know, cliff, uh, a certain part of the US on the East Coast. And uh, um, there was like a, a light tower. And so he imagined a dish, uh, you know, with scallops and, uh, um, you know, like different uh, salop and foie gras. I think it was a, a combination, if I remember well. And um, so when he finished his shower, he, he started to, um, you know, write uh, what came to his mind. And um, he decided to, in fact, to write the whole menu around uh, the the song of uh, Neil Young. So I think like seven dishes, it was like a tasting menu. And, and then he continued, you know, with, uh, um, you know, other uh, famous singers and bands. And uh, he made a whole series of dinners, um, you know, around that idea. So I thought it was pretty unique and pretty, pretty unique. I love that story. You know, we talked about diversity. And of course, all of the culinary professionals you feature in your book, come from a distinct and wide ranging backgrounds. I mean, that's just what US, as we said, that's what US food culture is, wide ranging, distinct variety, but what do they all have in common? You know, it starts with the passion, you know, the passion for, for food. Uh, and they discover that passion different ways, you know, sometimes it's because they come from, uh, let's say family that is in food or is, um, you know, in connected to a farm or, um, you know, they started to um, work in the summer, you know, at, at the restaurant where they are still at school. And sometimes, you know, it's the, the hard way because they, they have to find a way to uh, survive and uh, and help the family. So, uh, but whatever it is, the, at one moment, there is this passion that, that comes up and, uh, and they all are motivated by like curiosity. Uh, they are very curious about uh, the world of uh, food. They are curious about, you know, what others, you know, are doing. They want to always learn something new. Um, so they have this, uh, I think the third element after passion and curiosity is uh, drive. The people I interviewed that are acclaimed chef that had uh, an award, either, you know, Rising Star from Star Chefs or James Beard, um, you know, finalists, they they all have that drive uh, that makes them successful. I think probably the fourth thing is discipline. They all talk about, uh, they have acquired uh, discipline and they thank either the culinary school uh, they went to or the mentors that they, they um, you know, they had uh, that helped them to, um, you know, to really ingrain that discipline in their, uh, you know, in their day-to-day, -day, you know, activity. And uh, probably the, uh, the other element uh, that was even stronger because of the whole situation of the pandemic is resilience. Uh, this is so amazing to see those people, the strength that they have and the fact that, uh, you know, they, they are facing adversity um, with a lot of uh, different elements. And of course, the pandemic was a tough one, but they are very resilient. So passion, curiosity, drive, discipline, resilient, and all of them have this ultimate goal to make people happy. So, you know, we go to a restaurant, we go to a bar, uh, we enjoy a dish, uh, a menu, a drink. Um, and most of the time people, um, you know, have a good time, but they don't realize, you know, everything what's happening in the background. And that's what my podcast or the book is about. The stories you tell in the book are fabulous to read. They're interesting. Listening to you interview these culinary professionals on your podcast is so much fun. It's entertaining. 
But let me ask, how do these stories, how will your book be helpful to home cooks? Good question. They are going to discover the the importance of, um, you know, access of like, like quality ingredients. I think that um, we are so used, you know, to have access to any type of uh, ingredients year long um, through grocery stores and so on. And a part of my book is uh, talking with those chefs, um, emphasize the importance on the season and the importance of the quality of the product that are in season, the produce that are in season. So um, they are going to have some tips about uh, the need to connect with farmers, you know, go to the farmer's markets, but not only shop at the farmer's markets, but create relationship, you know, with those farmers or the people that are bringing, um, you know, meat protein um, for someone who, you know, enjoy uh, meat um, and discover as well, like um, special markets and even connect with the chefs, you know, chefs love talking about food. Uh, so uh, chefs are a great source of information on how to, um, uh, to identify, um, uh, let's say, a great source of inform of uh, products wherever you live. Um, so, Yes, sometimes you need to pay a bit, maybe more for it. Um, but the quality of uh, maybe, you know, the summer tomatoes or the peaches, you know, during the summer, um, make a great impact on your dish. You know, your tomato salads or, you know, the peach that you are using in, um, you know, a cobblers on, and so on, they are going to be really, really, um, you know, uh, it's going to make a difference. So there's a lot of other things about, discovering, spending the time to discover the region where you live when it comes to food or when you travel. People need to spend time to maybe research, you know, food specialties like ingredients, you know, from, from the region. And before people go on, uh, on the travel, look at food markets, restaurants, uh, food halls that are popping up, you know, everywhere in the, in the country. So I, I shared, you know, in the book, uh, how you can set up as well your own tasting tour. Uh, people can, um, you know, spend time and, and travel and, uh, and it's easy to um, to organize your tasting tour and take like half a day wherever you're going and, and discover the richness when it comes to um, food, you know, in uh, the place that um, you are going to uh, travel to. As a food professional, what have you personally learned from your interviews with these world-renowned chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists? Thank you for asking this question. In fact, this is um, the way how I end the book. So I learned around different things around food and, um, you know, as, as leadership, I am uh, in charge of uh, marketing for food ingredient company. Um, so, um, you know, I manage a team and, uh, and those leaders um, manage, you know, small or large teams, you know, in their kitchen, restaurants, some are restaurateurs and so on. So, uh, so from a leadership standpoint, I, I really learned things around the idea of creating a positive environment. I think the world of uh, uh, restaurants and chef, you know, has changed. Uh, um, there's still this image, you know, uh, of the chef yelling, uh, maybe a lot of like the, you know, the French school uh, of like this authority in, uh, in the kitchen that has changed tremendously. It's a lot about collaboration at the moment. So um, they, they, told me a lot of things when it comes to investing in people. So that's uh, something that is, is very um, important. It's amazing when you talk to those people that they are always um, ready, you know, to discover a specific like business opportunity or uh, a new collaborations or a new uh, connection with, uh, you know, with uh, other 
people in the food world or outside of the food world. Um, so this idea of like being open-minded and uh, adopt like an attitude of constant learning. Um, and then when it comes to food, um, obviously this is the quest for quality ingredients. Um, and, um, you know, thinking about cooking local, uh, cooking in season, um, and even exploring foraging. I have spent time with uh, one or two other chefs to, uh, you know, to forage with them before, um, you know, before cooking. And uh, there's so much things that, um, you know, and treasure that uh, nature can offer. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I share like a, a unique moment uh, in the book with my younger son, we went to Washington DC and there was a chef at that time Now he changed. He's not in, uh, in Washington DC anymore, but he was doing a concept uh, that was called foraging and feasting. And we spent time with him um, foraging like along the Potomac river. Um, and then after that, we ended up in his restaurant and doing uh, in fact an 18 course tasting menu. Um, that was a, a phenomenal experience that is still you know, ingrained in my brain and uh, my son as well, um, you know, still talk about it. So, um, yeah, I, um, I I learned a lot about, um, you know, about food and uh, and um, how to make, you know, like food a, a memorable experience. So the book came out of your podcast called Flavors Unknown. What's the story behind that name, Flavors Unknown? So um, flavor is really critical. That's the way how we experience, you know, food, how we remember food. Um, we we save what I call in the book, like I have a, a chapter called the Flavor Memory Database. So we are saving those food experience in our Flavor Memory Database. And and flavor evoke, um, you know, a lot of emotions. So um, there's a lot of things connected to, um, you know, to our childhood. We we uh, we talk a lot about this on the podcast with, uh, you know, with my guests. Um, so uh, really, for me, that was this idea of people spending time to discover like new flavor linked to a region, linked to um, a new ingredient, for instance, or as well, like flavor combinations, you know, there's a lot of interesting flavor combinations that chefs and, and mixologists are, are creating. So that's, that's one element of the, the title of uh, the name of my podcast. The other one, obviously, and it's the unknown part, uh, it is an homage to um, Anthony Bourdain. In fact, when I launched in 2018, my podcast, it was not too long uh, after, um, you know, Anthony Bourdain um, like passed away. So um, that's an homage for him. Because uh, when I came to the US, um, a few years after there was the no reservations, and then after that parts unknown, uh, that became very popular. Um, it was an introduction to a time of food, you know, to the masses in here in the US. And um, I love that show. So um, the unknown part uh, of uh, my um, podcast name, Flavors Unknown, is an homage to um, Anthony Bourdain. If people are not familiar with your podcast, Flavors Unknown, they should. They definitely should listen. And for the people who do listen regularly, what's different from Flavors Unknown, the podcast, and your book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. Obviously, this is this is really different. This is um, based on like three seasons of the podcast, but I was um, very cautious, like for me to add, you know, more value because what would be the reason for someone listening to the podcast, you know, to to buy the book? So um, 
I, um, I studied the idea of the book after engaging with a lot of uh, listeners, you know, for the, to the, from the podcast. And a lot of people listen to, let's say, you know, several episodes because they know the guests or the guest is uh, maybe in the city that they are uh, they live in or because they are traveling, they are going to travel to the city. Um, a lot of people said, you know, it will be great. You know, we, we are food enthusiasts or we are, you know, chefs and cooks and uh, we buy a lot of book around food. So it would be great if you can use that content and, and, and write a book. So um, some people said to me, oh, maybe you should structure the book like, you know, a chapter per guest. And I'm like, no, that, that's not what I want to do. I, what I did is I really, really sent to, um, you know, all those episodes and I tried to focus on like common threads and topics that were mentioned by my, my guests. One example, for instance, I have, um, uh, you know, like the multiple source of inspiration that, you know, you, you asked me about before uh, coming from the chef, the pastry chef and the mixologist to create like a dessert, a, a dish or, or a drink. So I call this chapter, I think I mentioned it like the flavor memory database. So the chapter is in two parts. And uh, the first part of the chapters um, covers how chefs and everyone are exposed to new food experiences from childhoods to travels and how we feed our flavor memory database with those experiences. So I went back through like the three years episodes and I, you know, collected all those uh, information um, and, um, you know, I connected as well and I brought my own uh, experience in the mix because people can relate, you know, when they read about the chapter, I'll talk about my childhood memories. And even if it was in France, you know, people can relate to their food memories um, or the importance of, of travels. So that chapters, uh, that first part of the chapters is about how people collect their, their food memories. The second part of the chapter is something a little bit more tricky. It's make the difference between us, like, you know, food enthusiasts and people that are chefs or mixologists or pastry chefs that have this talent and the ability to activate this food memory database and leverage their skills, techniques, and, and create those fantastic dishes, you know, and, and drinks that uh, we can enjoy. So the second part of the chapters go through those episodes and I kind of summarize like four different stimuli that those people uh, go through that are responsible for firing the chefs with, you know, with those ideas. So it could be like, you know, the song that I was uh, talking about from uh, Fiori Tedesco before. Uh, so it could be sound, it could be colors, it could be, uh, you know, cookbook, now social media, for instance, or even dreams. And this really firing those ideas, you know, and, uh, and bring back those memory um, uh, the, this food memory for them to create dishes. So as you can tell, I see that this is really different from like an episode because an episode of the podcast will focus on one guest and I will ask that person about uh, their sources of inspiration, how their creative process. Um, the book is really looking at those common denominators, you know, between all the guests and all the learnings, you know, that, um, you know, I, I learned. The book Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door will be out in November. Emmanuel LaRoche wrote the book. He is the host of the popular podcast Flavors Unknown. Emmanuel, thank you so much for spending time with us and telling us more about what you're doing and your conversations with these 
these amazing food people. Thank you very much. Wow. So very informative guy. Very, uh, yeah. lots to say. He's got his thumb on the pulse of the food trends in the U.S. and what inspires people. Isn't that kind of amazing? Yeah. To, to it was maybe, so much fun talking to him. Is it? Is it because perhaps he's not from the U.S.? I mean, does it allow him a clearer vision well, yeah, of the that's U.S.? Yeah, that's what he said. You know, he came here with this idea that there is no food culture in the U.S., and he's really worked hard to try and find it and discover it, and it's he's done a great job. And we are going to move on to segment four. What's making us happy in food this week? You're up. Oh, I'm up? Okay, well, what's making me happy in food this week is champagne. Um, mm, that makes me happy every day. <laughs> we had house guests uh, last weekend, and these house guests showed up with a case of champagne. And mm. I don't mean Prosecco, and I don't mean Cava. They showed up with a case of French champagne, and mm. we mm. drank champagne all week long. It was insane because, you know, whoever has 12 bottles of champagne just lying around the house. So well, you want to open another one? Just open another one because there's so many more left to go. That was really such a generous house. <laughs> it's far more generous than I would ever be. And we drank champagne all weekend. I didn't drink another thing, and it was just spectacular. It was. And what really surprised me about it is he brought a mixed case. And, you know, Mark and I love exploring new champagnes and grower champagnes. And small. I, should, I should say that if I could only pick one wine to ever have yeah. for the rest of my life, it would be champagne. And what surprised me in this mixed case is what I really loved was the great old classic stand by the Moet and Chandon. And I loved it. Yeah. I haven't had Moet in had so long. It was so long. And it was so good. It, it was, was just so it, yeasty and and classic. Dry. It was the driest champagne I've it, had. It's really funny because, of course, now in my modern life, as I, if I buy champagne, I would pass by the Moet in a second mm -hmm. and not even think about buying it. And yet it was really the best of the lot in terms of what he brought because it was his persist dry and yeasty. Okay, what's making you happy in food this week? Pickled peaches, spiced pickled peaches. <laughs> we Mark is laughing because he grew up with them. I didn't. I did. But we bought a giant jar of them when we were in Asheville at the farmer's market uh, about a month and a half ago. And I smoked a brisket last weekend for friends. And we broke out the pickled spiced peaches to have with the brisket, oh with the smoked God. brisket spiced and some coleslaw peaches. and some vinegary cucumbers. And it was a good dinner. It was. We had spiced peaches. They always were in a bowl. Uh, my mother's probably still has this bowl. It's a bowl with cranberries around the rim of it. Um, a china bowl with cranberries around the rim of it. And it was always filled with spiced peaches. And I have to say that even as a Southerner, not many members of my family liked them. Of course, my grandmother made them. And not many members of my Southern family liked them. But I love them and she loved them and my great aunts loved them. And they were always put out with ham. It was always ham and spiced peaches. It was a thing. They didn't actually I know Southerners are going to scream at me, but my Southern family didn't sweet glaze a ham. My grandmother just didn't do that. She didn't put the brown sugar on it and all and that stuff. she didn't pour Coke on it either? No, she didn't do any of that stuff. So the sweetened spiced peaches were the sweet mm. against the salty ham. Yeah. It was really something that from my childhood that I couldn't believe when I found people actually still making spiced peaches. Kind of amazing. Well, that's the podcast for this week. Again, subscribe, rate, do all the things that you can 
do so that we can keep doing these things that we like to do. We're really happy to do this. Again, this podcast is completely unsponsored. We don't have any dogs in a hunt from any corporate entity. It's just the two of us, which was why we could talk about putting ice in uh, wine and why I can call margarita mix crappy on the air. (laughs) Because there are no corporate sponsors. It looks like a duck and smells like a duck and walks like a duck. Must be a cat. So, uh, so please come back next week for another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.